Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56, our key text today that we'll study. Matthew 26, 47 through 56, we continue following Jesus verse by verse, moment by moment through the Gospels. As I originally laid these sermons out months ago, I entitled this Standing Alone, but then as I look deeper, it wasn't just that Jesus was left standing alone at the end of these verses, but of the three major persons at work in this passage of Scripture, Judas, Peter, in Jesus, we learn different things about ourselves. And you're going to see yourself a little bit in Judas at times. You're going to see yourself a little bit in Peter. And hopefully you see yourself a little bit in Jesus. And we realize that Jesus is our example. But what it's about is character. And character is revealed in testing. Character is revealed in the dark. It's revealed when no one is looking. Our challenging moments, our worst moments, our most painful, most stressful, most trying, but maybe our most privileged, most free. What do we do? If we consider such, we'll have to admit that on our own, our character doesn't always measure up. And we have to admit that not unlike John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus in John 3.30, when he said that I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase, that there's got to be a change of the balance of our life. Our scripture memory verse for the month um, points us that direction. And we're in a new month here, February, obviously, and we've got a new scripture verse and taken from a passage of scripture at the end of the month in our Lord's Supper sermon series. But let's read this together. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Think about that. Once we have trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, our lives are in Him, and it is not for ourselves we are living anymore, and it is not by ourselves we are living. Have you considered this phrase? And this one you might write down somewhere. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone that we live. By grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone that we live. Yet, where we fail is when we do it our way. It is by my works alone and through my thinking alone and in myself alone that we fail. I ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 verses 47 through 56. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able to stand with me, please stand with me now in the honor of reading God's word as we Read through our key text. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man arrested. Uh, A man is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward 
seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you would come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, like every Sunday when we open your word together, it's our prayer that you would open our understanding. That as we consider the events that are happening here, We would be able to see ourselves in these events and from that understanding by your spirit, learn to be more of who you've called us to be. So, Father, speak to us now by your word, we pray. It's in Jesus name. Everyone said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So walking through this scripture We'll take a few minutes to do that, walk through verse by verse, and talk about it in an expository fashion. But really, the meat of our message today is the most of your notes page. And that notes page there is about the three different persons and the examples of character we learn from them. But I I want us to not miss anything as we go here, because there's a few points that are prominent and a few that are uh, asides that we should pick up as well. So look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, speaking about what? Speaking to who? Let's say you weren't here last week and you're just picking up to the story. Well, Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's, uh, you know, going back to set the stage. It's had the what we call the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. And he said to them, we're going to go out here and pray. He's prepared them through much teaching of what it's going to be like when he's no longer here on the earth. And he's gone to pray and he took all of them with him other than Judas who had left to betray him. So he's got 11 of them. Then he takes three of them a little further into this olive grove, Gethsemane. And he's praying and he had that prayer last week. We covered that in our scripture. So he has just said to them, look, in verse 46, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, there was a big enough pack of folks coming, as we understand from the Scripture, that he probably heard them. There was commotion. It may not have been that he divinely knew, supernaturally, that, hey, somebody's coming, like he had some Holy Spirit radar or something going on. Not at all. But notice it says, while he was still there, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. What will you see happening here is Psalm 41.9 being fulfilled. This is Scripture being fulfilled. You might write that down. Psalm 41.9. It says, the one who I shared my bread with betrayed me with a kiss. I mean, it says that, and it was written a thousand plus years before this event happened. If you read in Psalm 55, verse 12 through 14, again, it has this picture of a friend, a close companion, who has betrayed not just anyone, but the Messiah. And so we see that Judas, one of the twelve, it says, 
It seems strange that he'd be called out this way. You'd think that Matthew and the others would hate him and would disparage him. Yet, in fact, of the four gospel writers, and all four of them write about this very incident, that none of them have anything necessarily negative or ugly to say about Judas. They call him a betrayer, but they don't call him any nasty names, and they don't say bad things about him. That they treated even Judas with respect and didn't speak ill of him. And it says, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now, this passage of Scripture is parallel to John chapter 18 and Luke chapter 22 and Mark chapter 14. So if you see your Bible might show you there where you can read these other passages. And why did I pick the one here in Matthew? Because it had the most content I felt like we could deal with knowing that I would refer to the other ones. And when referring to the other ones, here's what we learn. If you were to read John 18 verse 3 and 12, you'd see that there were some soldiers sent as well as some temple guards. So the Roman officials in charge of this area that Jesus lived in and was teaching and preaching in, they were in charge of keeping the peace, so they want to make sure everything goes well. And so they send some soldiers with them. And then there's some temple guards as well, because the Jewish people had their own guards, like a private security force at the temple to make sure things went well in the temple. So in this crowd is Roman soldiers and temple guards. And you have to wonder, if they're coming out to take out just one guy who's not known to carry any weapons, I mean, yes, he has his words which blow people away, and yes, he can do some supernatural things, why in the world would they bring such a horde with swords and clubs? It's been said that a guilty conscience always produces cowardice. And maybe in their cowardice they were coming in this way. So there'd been this prearranged signal of a kiss. And this same sort of kiss, like in Middle Eastern cultures and some European countries, they greet each other today. You know, the kiss on the cheek on either side. And for us in America, you know, we're like, hey, keep your distance. I'm going to shake your hand. Maybe I'll give you a side hug. If I really like you, I'll give you. But I'm not kissing you unless you're my grandma, okay? But in those cultures, that kiss... And it was something that friends exchanged as a greeting or you did with someone as you welcomed them. And Judas says to him, greetings, rabbi, even hail master. And you have to wonder the tone of voice when Jesus said this to him, knowing what he was going to do, knowing that he was going to betray him to death. But Jesus replies in verse 50, friend, do what you have come for. It's interesting that in this usage, The proper word is not friend, phileo, like, you know, brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The word used here in Greek is actually hedairos, and it means a comrade, a fellow. This is what you would call somebody you don't know that you meet out on the street. You'd say, hedairos. But if you saw somebody you do know, you'd say, phileo. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he refers to them this way. Verse 51, so they stepped forward to arrest him in the end of verse, uh, uh, seized him and arrested him in the end of verse 50. Verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Uh, Okay. 
Yeah, so, you know, Jesus has been leading these guys for three years. They've seen him do all sorts of miraculous things. There is a passage of Scripture earlier uh, that cited that something is said about, you know, swords and all that. And and, and we're not going to go back into that one. Uh, And they might have misunderstood that and thought, oh, Jesus is telling us we need to arm ourselves for battle. And who in the world was this? If you don't know... But if you were to guess, of all the disciples, it was a little bit overreactionary and impetuous. Who might you guess? Peter. Yeah. And we know it's Peter because it says so in John 18.10. So uh, flip back over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Remember, I told you this uh, story is recounted in all the Gospels. And it says in John 18.10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, I don't know how this happened to Malchus, and I don't know how he cut his ear off and not his shoulder. I mean, was he ducking away? I mean, I don't know the maneuver that was going on here. We could leave this to some Hollywood types to recreate this. But one way or the other, as the Scripture reports, this is what happened. That... His ear was cut off. And you got to ask, why wasn't Peter arrested? Is it because of Jesus' manner of cooling the situation? It was uh, they were more interested in arresting Jesus, and they didn't care about this incidental thing uh, with Peter. But looked in Luke chapter 22. So turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and I think maybe we're going to get the answer to why wasn't Peter arrested. In Luke chapter 22... Parallel passage starting in verse 47. And notice what it says in verse 51. Luke twenty-two fifty-one. But Jesus answered, no more of this, saying to Peter and others who were, you know, resorting to swords and violence. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So I don't know if his ear was laying on the ground, if it was just hanging off, but one way or the other, Jesus touched him and the man's ear was restored. So one way or the other, this miracle happens in the midst of this encounter that Jesus has mercy and heals the servant. And you, can you imagine the reaction of all those gathered when they see the power of Jesus on display? Now back over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 52, 53, and 54 are unique to Matthew. You know, the other Gospels, there are many times parallel verses because they borrowed from one another. You know, the theory is that Mark was written first and Matthew looked at some of what Mark wrote and added a little bit more from his memory and then Luke added a little bit more and that there might be this other source, Q, Quellel, that we don't have, but it's referred to by scholars that way that was original with Mark. And so that's where the gospel traditions came from as editors and people that look back at the syntax and the word choice and word order. Look at that. But Matthew chapter 50, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 through 54 are unique to the gospel. Gospel of Matthew. That's the other reason I chose to preach out of this passage rather than Mark or Luke or John for this. And Peter, or excuse me, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. And then he speaks, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now, folks have used this, unrightfully so, in my opinion, as a call to pacifism. 
Jesus is not calling people to pacifism. He's simply making an observation. He's not making a declaration that you shall not take up arms. That's not what he's saying. He's making an observation that violence leads to violence. And then he goes on to point out that I don't need defending. Look at verse 53. Do you not think I can call on my father and at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Does anybody know how many soldiers comprised a Roman legion? History buffs? 6,000. Do the math. You know, put 180,000 angels could come and defend me if I wanted him to. You don't need to defend me with swords. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.4, and you might write that reference down, that our weapons are not flesh, but divinely powerful. We so often fall into the same trap that Peter fell into here. When we do things our own way with our own devices instead of trusting God in prayer and asking that His power might do beyond what we can do. Yes, we can pull out a sword and lop off an ear. But if God can bring legions of angels on our behalf to change the situation, what could we do? Verse 54 But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must say it must happen this way? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus is referring back to Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn over a few pages, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Now, if your Bible's like my Bible, that one verse of Scripture is littered with little footnotes, the little letters, that if you read those, take you back to the Old Testament, where every one of those unique happenstances were predicted and prophesied by the Old Testament. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And the disciples were filled with grief. So this is the second time in a different situation, at a different time, when he's telling them, This is what's going to happen to me. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. It says, And we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will be turned over to the Gentiles, the Roman authorities, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Again, you see all those footnotes in there, and you go back and read those. Jesus is saying, here's what was prophesied was going to happen in the Old Testament. Here, right now, contemporarily, is what I'm going to tell you is going to happen in a few months, then in a few weeks. And now he's saying in a few days, and he's saying it's going to happen now, tomorrow. It's happening right at this very moment. So come back to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 55, at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? He really puts it to him in a way that Jesus can. He says, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. 
That whole last week, he was in the temple every day. People were coming to him, and they could have arrested him when he was right there. Why come in the middle of the night? Why come with crowd with clubs and swords to capture him? Verse 56. But all this had taken place that the writings of prophets must be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted and fled him. The writings of the prophet referring to that are Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. So again, in the suffering servant songs, where it says, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen, that Jesus is going to be betrayed. And this kind of crowd is going to come against him. They all deserted him, and here he is alone. Not just misunderstood, not just neglected, but betrayed. Here he is. John MacArthur says, It's easy to criticize the disciples for their faithlessness and cowardice. But every honest believer knows that at times, he's run from embarrassment, ridicule, or mockery because of his association with Jesus. So before we beat up the disciples, let's get into the lessons learned from this. And hopefully you've already written some notes down, but now you've got some blanks to fill in, okay? So if you checked out, check back in. And let's see the three different types of character revealed here. The first type of character revealed here is that of a false Christ follower, like Judas shows. A false Christ follower, like Judas shows. He was a pretender, a counterfeit, a fake, a fraud. A false Christ follower. You look at verse 50. Verse 50, he said, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came for. Judas had spent this time with Jesus and his disciples. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. And we don't know what his motivation was for sure. Was it that Jesus wasn't a revolutionary Messiah that was going to take down the Romans? Or was it that he didn't have any real motivation other than uh, selfish gain in stealing from the pot and uh, you know, making money off of this? We don't know. But it's this self-interest, this deceit, this hypocrisy. And he is a type for us of a false Christian. The type of person that may come to church for years and knows how to say the right things and knows how to look the right way and may even serve in our church or other churches but is not a genuinely converted believer of Jesus. And how do you see that? Well, the first part you see is their self-interest as their motivation. Self-interest as their motivation. If you meet somebody who proclaims faith in Jesus and their primary motivation, not just on one occasion, but on most every occasion that you have interaction with them, is self-interest, not in the interest of God's kingdom, not in the interest of God's church, not in the interest of others less fortunate, but self-interest is their primary motivation, you may have to wonder about their Christianity, the veracity of their decision to follow Christ. That explanation statement says that they act without concern for others. So that's the really hard edge of this self-interest as their motivation. 
uh, most folks are mature enough to kind of mask their self-interest, right? And to kind of uh, know when to keep that in check and hide it from other people. Because with self-interest and selfishness comes deceit. These two things go hand in hand. And we learn how to do that. It's maturity, we call it, right? But it's really lying. But at its worst, it's this no concern for others. The problem with selfishness is that it leads to isolation. As our own Chris Dejabay said a few years ago, you don't notice others when you're thinking about yourself. We can't see others' needs because we're so consumed with our own. J.C. Ryle, the great theologian, says, Grace, however, shakes a man out of his selfishness and makes him feel for the souls of others. If you find yourself this morning full of self-interest and without concern for others, and you believe you're a Christian, then you need to ask God right now for the grace to shake you out of your selfishness. Pastor Ryan Loving says, Love comforts, encourages, inspires, challenges, cares, forgives, and endures. But selfishness sucks the power out of love. Show some love today. Ask God for grace that you might love others in the way that Jesus has loved you. God-powered, other-focused, and self-sacrificing. And other is short of love. Let's look at the second point about a false Christ follower. Is that there is deceit to cover their hypocrisy. There's deceit to cover their hypocrisy. Satan is called the father of lies in scriptures. And his very first attack on humanity against Adam and Eve was a lie. And he speaks lies. Lies are his native language. He is the deceiver. And if you get so caught up listening to Satan that you can't hear God, then you're going to begin to speak that language, the language of deceit that demonstrates your hypocrisy. What I would tell you you need to do to heal yourself from that is get God's truth in you. Amen? That you need to daily read God's Word. The more often you feel like you're deceitful and hypocritical and self-interested, the more you need to put God's Word in you that you might might see from God's perspective that your heart may be broken by the things that breaks God's heart. Proverbs 12:22 states very simply, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Zechariah 8:16 and 17 and you can write these other scriptures down. Says these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this. Tell the truth. Love others. Don't be deceitful. We know that, right? We learn these things in kindergarten and it's a 10 commandment, right? Thou shalt not lie. But look at the explanation here of a false Christ follower. They use deceit to cover their hypocrisy, but they act to make themselves look good. That's that explanation statement. They act to make themselves look good. Not only do they say deceitful things, but they act in deceitful ways. And I'm sure Judas, because he was human just like us, had himself as justifications for why he was doing was okay, acceptable. When all the time he was deceiving himself and deceiving others. So that's a false Christ follower. 
Let's look at our second example of character. Our second example is a immature Christ follower like Peter. Now you would say, hey, wait a second. Peter was like Jesus' right-hand man, right? Peter did all this amazing stuff elsewhere in the Bible. I mean, you read the book of Acts and you got First and Second Peter. Dude, the dude was powerful. The dude preached. The dude healed people. The dude did amazing things. Yeah, that was after this, okay? So keep in mind what's happening right here. Right here, Peter still has this immature sort of faith. So immature, he's ready to whack a dude's ear off, right? He's going to react in a fleshly way. And let's talk about that a little bit. An immature Christ follower shows that. The first thing it says is impulsivity due to being spiritually unprepared. Now, I know that's a big word, impulsivity. Maybe there's a, there's a shorter word, you know, rash. Uh, I mean, unthinking, I don't know, but you could come up with one or go to thesaurus.com and give me one. But he was impulsive. And the reason he was impulsive is he wasn't prepared spiritually. Jesus had just preached to them the greatest sermon ever. Here's everything you need to know to be ready for when I'm not here. And then Jesus brought them out to have a prayer meeting and pray about what they had just learned. And rather than praying, Peter falls asleep. He's not spiritually prepared. He's asleep. I wonder how many of my problems would be solved if rather than doing sleeping, I did some more praying. What can we learn from Peter here? That might be tweet worthy right there, Chris. Watch out. They react in fear, not faith. An immature Christ follower reacts in fear, not faith. Because you haven't spent enough time with Jesus, because you don't have faith in His Word, because you haven't prayed to strengthen your relationship in Him, that when a situation comes that you don't understand, that you don't think you can handle, you react in fleshly fear rather than God-honoring supernatural faith. Friends, I'm right there with you. Don't think I'm pointing the finger at you. I've got three pointing back at me, right? Bob Goff says that fear makes a lousy guide. It doesn't really care where you go. It just wants you scared when you get there. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man lays a snare, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Michael Hyatt reminds us that fear is normal. It's just an emotion. Don't let it stop you. The great preacher of generations past, R.A. Torrey, said, Don't let Satan deceive you into being afraid of God's plan for your life. So here we have that deceit we saw in Judas and the fear we see in Peter. And Torrey tells us, Don't let that fear deceive you. Trust in God. So the first mark of an immature Christ follower in this passage of Scripture that Peter shows us is impulsivity. He wasn't prepared spiritually. He reacted in fear. The second mark is impatience due to their reliance on self. These two marks go hand in hand. They react without God. They react without God. That... We are so ready to see it happen that we're going to do it ourselves. I'm not going to take time to pray. I don't have time to pray, much less time to wait for an answer. And besides, God might give me the answer I don't want. I want it my way and I want it now, right? So I'm going to do it. And so we get impatient. 
And we rely on ourselves, we do it our way, and we react without God even involved. And then we wonder why things go wrong. Anybody else ever have that happen in your life, right? You're like, dear God, please bless my plans, amen. And we go out and carry out our plans and the plans fall apart. And we say, God, why didn't you bless my plans? What's wrong with those two sentences, right? Which word? My. We react without God. They were unprepared. They'd fallen asleep. So they were powerless when the testing came. They were impulsive. Reacted on emotion, not divine revelation. They didn't count on God's perspective, but they reacted on their perspective. Impatient and carnal. Listen to how John MacArthur says it. He says, Peter boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, and acted too fast. He missed the point. Jesus had to explain it to him. Let me read that again. And how many of you are like Peter, right? Boasted too loudly. Right there with you. Prayed too little. Slept too much. Acted too fast. And missed the point. Remember that God allows us to get in tough situations, even puts us in tough situations in order that we would be forced to have faith and depend on Him. In order that we might grow our faith muscles to be more like Jesus. So we talked about a fake, false Christ follower and an immature Christ follower. Let's look at the third point on your outline. And that's Jesus, our example. We can't call him a Christ follower because he's Christ, right? D.A. Carson talked about in verse 54, in his comment on verse 54, but how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that it say it must happen this way? That Carson summed it up this way, that Jesus unflagging determination to obey his Father's will. He was ready to do whatever it took. The first point you learn about Jesus is his faith in God's love. That he knew God enough that he had faith in God that no matter what was going to happen to him, he knew it was God's plan and God would carry him through. Manly Beasley said, a genuine step of faith is never a leap into the dark. On the contrary, it's a wonderful leap into the light. It's leaping into the light of God's goodness and God's provision and God's grace. Elton Trueblood says that faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Wow, think about that one. Trust without reservation. Your proof is that you can look at the Bible and see God's goodness. You can see God's faithfulness. You can look back at your own life and see God's provision. That's your proof. And so you have trust without reservation. And that is faith. Romans 5, 1 through 2, write that one down. It says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God that's Romans 5 1 and 2 it's by faith we gain access to grace 
And it is that in which we now stand, the grace which we stand, and that's where our hope comes from. Friends, if we're following Jesus' example, we've got to have faith in God's love for us. And notice the next phrase they're explaining it is that Jesus acted with purpose. He'd said there in verse 54, it's got to happen this way because it's the way God intends. Whether I like it or not doesn't matter. Whether it's going to be hard on me or not doesn't matter. This is God's will and this is the way it's going to happen. Oh, that we would have such faith that we could follow God like Jesus. That no matter what, we would act with God's purpose in mind, not our own purpose. Your next point there about Jesus as our example is his obedience to God's plan. His obedience to God's plan. Jesus had chastised the Pharisees previously in Mark 7, 9 when he said, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. How many of us set aside God's commands in order to observe our own traditions or our own likes or our own dislikes or our own will? 1 John 3, 24 says, Whoever keeps his commands and abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, if you obey God, you'll know the Holy Spirit's presence in you, which in turn helps you obey God. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is seen by obedience, as obedience is seen as evidence of the Holy Spirit. These two things go hand in glove together. 1 John 5, 2 adds to that. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. Our love of others demonstrates our love of God. Our obedience to God demonstrates our love of God. So Jesus had faith in God alone. And He acted with purpose. He was obedient to God's plan. And your last blanks on your outline this morning is even though He now stood alone. Even though it meant everybody he knew that loved him deserted him. Even though he now stood alone. Don't put up your Bibles yet. Turn to John chapter 18. By means of conclusion, we need to hear the words of Jesus in this incident. John, writing much later and with a different purpose than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, records everything differently. But listen to what he says, John 18.1. When he had finished praying, he left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. John didn't name it Gethsemane, but parallel, we know it is. And his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was his private place of prayer. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some Roman officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, because he knew Scripture, he knew the prophecies, and because he walked closely with God and God told him, went out and asked, Who is it you want? Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I mean, it's dark out there, right? They got torches. It's not like they had uh, media where they knew what Jesus' face looked like. 
He could be any dude with a Galilean accent, right? I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We've got to take a moment to go a little deeper and understand this in summary of our sermon and before we pray today. When Jesus said, I am he, the way it's recorded in Greek is the phrase ego I me. That's the Greek version of God's name, I am. What was it about Jesus proclaiming I am that had supernatural power that knocked a mob of people with clubs and torches and weapons on their backsides? His presence, the fact that he was obeying God and so filled with God's Spirit, it knocked them over at his word. Again, they asked him, verse 7, or he asked them, Who is it you want? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, verse 8, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go, speaking of his disciples. This happened so that the words he spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus, in the worst moments of his life, exercised faith and obedience to God as an example to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we may see ourselves more like Judas, selfish and deceitful, at least we are at times. We may see ourselves more like Peter, impetuous, rash, doing things on our own. But our prayer is, God, that as we grow in maturity, we'd see ourselves more like Jesus. Not just our view, but your view. So, Father, I pray this morning for every brother and sister in Christ that is here, regardless of their age, that by your word today we be inspired to have faith and to obey and to love like Jesus and to follow your purpose no matter what. God, we also pray for those that are here today who have never trusted Christ Jesus as their Savior or Lord, that they would recognize their own sinfulness, confess their faith as Jesus is their Savior and Lord, and turn to follow Him forever. God, whatever it is that we need to do today, would we respond to You as Jesus did? It's in His name we pray. Amen.